is it doesn't really matter what your rank is or what your assignment is. Like I understand that the fire chief of a large metropolitan department is probably not going to one alarm fires and grabbing the hose line anymore. But in, in my opinion, he should still want to. Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategy, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again for another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives firefighters the information they need in about 20 minutes. Let's get started. How would you grade your most recent incident commander's performance? Solid or timid? Solid is an IC who has been trained and seasoned. And one more element, practiced. Timid is someone who is maybe trained, but not especially seasoned may be inexperienced, and especially a little scared. They're afraid someone's going to get hurt or killed. Today's guest argues that a timid IC is worse than simply inefficient. They're incompetent. That's what Nick Martin posted on Facebook recently. If you want to see the post, it's linked at code3podcast.com slash afraid. It's one of five in a series on nervous ICs. Nick is a battalion chief with the city of Salisbury Fire Department in North Carolina. Before that, he served as chief of training for the city of Columbia, South Carolina, and as a lieutenant with the District of Columbia Fire Department. Back in 1994, he started in the fire service in his hometown of Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. Nick founded and runs Combat Ready Fire, which offers a variety of firefighting and fire leadership courses. And Nick Martin joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Hey, thanks again for for having me back on the show. So we don't want to have a timid IC. They don't inspire confidence. But otherwise, what's the harm? I think the the problem is and what kind of, you know, inspired me to post some of that stuff and and what kind of inspires me about incident command in general is that I started in the fire service in in the Philly area in the mid 90s. And I just I grew up in a culture where I felt like for a very long time, talented fire ground commanders were very important and were a priority and, and they were pretty prevalent. You know, I mean, that's what a a good chief officer was known for was their ability to command a tough fire. And that ability kind of, kind of made or broke their reputation. And, you know, as I progressed in my career, you know, and made it into the company officer level and then, and then later became a battalion chief myself, I just feel like, you know, somewhere in the past 20 or so years, we fell off on prioritizing that fire ground command skill set with our chief officers. And and a lot of the priority and a lot of the discussion at that chief officer level became focused more on administrative matters that, 
you know, while important in their own right, do not supersede or replace the need for strong fire ground command. And so I just haven't seen that focus in the training, in the mindset, or, or, or in the conversation amongst a lot of chief officers. So I think the problem with that is, among other things, that when, when a chief has spent so long not preparing to command a tough fire or not remaining focused on that, and then when they, they find themselves at the scene of a tough fire, they are unfortunately, understandably, very, very timid. You know, a lot of them, I think, know that they are not prepared or become aware on that fire ground that they're not prepared. They know the consequences of what could happen at that scene. With losing a firefighter, they know that they will probably not be the firefighter that gets lost, but that they'll watch it happen and they'll be responsible. And, and so, therefore, their willingness to be aggressive on a fire ground is, is very low. Now, you say command is a perishable skill. But if my department doesn't catch many fires these days, will drilling and simulated incidents keep my skills up, or is that not enough? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously there is absolutely nothing that is better at building skill than real-world experience, right? But in the same breath, like you said, I mean, you know, nobody can control how many real working fires their department goes to. So, you know, absolutely you, you have to fill that void to whatever extent you can with training. And, you know, I think that there is a lot of high stress, realistic incident command training you can do through simulations. I mean, that's something I do a lot at work and it's something I do a lot of, you know, on the side kind of going around and, and teaching these command classes and part of that being running real real world based you know high stress command simulations that kind of focus on principally building out the skill set of commanding those fires so that they're not struggling on an incident scene about well how do i organize this incident or what should i be saying on the radio or or what information should i be getting from who you know if they've honed in on that skill set and that is second nature to them then on the fire ground all they really have to worry about is what are the unique things about this fire or what is occurring here right in front of them. So, you know, some of those skills can be developed um, very well through training. You know, I mean, if you don't run a lot of fires in your department, I mean, the other opportunity is there are departments out there that run a lot of fires that if you call them up and say, hey, you know, I'd like to send a couple of my battalion chiefs or I would like to come out and ride with some of your battalion chiefs, you know, would you let me come out there and kind of shadow them to get some experience? That can be another way to fill that void if you're not, you know, catching the work in your own department that you feel you need to. How realistic is what you just suggested? This sounds like something where someone's going to have to admit that they're not ready and then take the steps to fix it. How, how realistic is that to happen? That's the ego issue. Firefighters of, of any rank, by their nature, are, you know, we're pretty type A personalities, and we, we all have an ego. Having an ego is often even given a bad name because it can get out of hand and all those bad things. But, you know, we all have it, and we have to understand that and admit it. And we all have it more than most other people in the world. So, you know, now the barrier there that you're referring to is absolutely true, is that the, the higher you move up in rank, kind of probably the more that chip on your shoulder grows if you don't check yourself or have, have someone else checking you for you. Yeah, I think that there are 
a lot of chief officers out there whose ego is getting in the way of them admitting that they need to work on their skills. Um, and, and quite frankly, there are a lot of chief officers out there who don't care to be on the fire ground anymore. I, I have been in some very frustrating conversations with peers or supervisors, chiefs senior to me. You know, I remember one where my boss, you know, told me I've done this for however many years and I don't care if I ever go to a fire ever again, you know, and, and he, he outranked me and he'd been a chief much longer than me. And, and, you know, in that moment, he lost absolutely almost all respect that I had for him. Because, you know, regardless... Well, well, yeah, it sounds like he needs a purely admin job if he's tired of going out in the field. Yeah, well, you know, and, and to be honest, he, he pretty much was in a purely admin job. But, you know, that that's even where I kind of talk about is it, is it doesn't really matter what your rank is or what your assignment is. Like, I understand that the fire chief of a large metropolitan department is probably not going to one alarm fires and grabbing the hose line anymore. But in in my opinion, he should still want to, right? It, you know, and because what I mean by that is this, is if, you know, if I'm the chief of a major fire department and, and you know what, that's just not in my job set anymore, that that's not really what the city expects me to do. I should, you know, if I still want to, if I still have that heart that, man, I really wish I could be on the fire ground today. I still go out to the fires. I still go sit around on the kitchen table. I still stay engaged. Like if you still have that, the heart of the backstep firefighter, whatever your rank or assignment or position is, you'll do it better, right? I mean, because who who buys better fire trucks or writes better policies, you know, or organizes and builds a fire department better for the guys in the field than a fire chief who still has being a firefighter in their heart? You know, that that's, I guess, what I mean is that, you, you know, yeah, you can find yourself in a position where, you know, you might not be responsible for going out to fires, or you might not be responsible for going out for anything but the major fires. But, you know, the moment you feel like, man, I really don't even care. I really don't even want to. I mean, I think you've lost the edge and you probably don't need to be on the department in any capacity anymore. There are several different ways that being inexperienced or being overconfident with your inexperience can manifest themselves. I'm curious if you think micromanaging is one of those. Do you think micromanaging is something that you see from somebody who's less experienced? Absolutely. In many areas of life, you know, micromanagement is a symptom that I don't really feel like I have control what's going on. I don't understand what's happening or I don't feel like I have a control over what's happening. So my reaction to do that is to keep asking you about it, to keep you know, managing the small details of it or, or in the fireground sense, keep calling you on the radio or that kind of stuff. That is absolutely, you know, something because, you know, it's not just the fireground. I mean, most good incident commanders are going to understand that like 95% of their good incident management happens before the fire ever comes in. And it happens in the firehouse because it represents preparing our crews training our acute crews, building them up, teaching them the expectations so that when they go to a fire, they don't have to be told what to do. They know what to do, right? I mean, if you if you have to micromanage your crews on the fire ground, you either have no idea what you're doing or you did not, you failed before the fire came in because you, you did not you, you did not prepare them to be successful. They should be in a position where you can trust them because you've trained them and you know what they can and can't do already. Yep, 100%. And, and if you have trained them and trained with them, 
then they will have that mutual respect for you and you'll be the chief outside that the guys feel comfortable as in command and feel and when you say something they will listen to you and they will respect you because you built that relationship and you demonstrated your expectations and your own you know dedication and skill set before the fire came in all right now i'm going to give you a sort of a hypothetical if you consider the experience level of a crew and you assume it's high does a solid, well-seasoned IC worry about his people becoming injured, or does he just worry about sending them in to put out the fire? I think that that uh, line in the sand is something that has to be communicated also as part of that pre-incident preparation, is that, you know, if you're referring, referring to, like, the, they're the, they're the go-get-em, a highly trained, very aggressive, high-speed kind of company, there can be a chance where those guys get themselves into a situation that they shouldn't be in. You know, but I, I remember I recently had a conversation with one of our crews, and we were kind of going through some scenarios, and, and the, you know, one of the members was suggesting, you know, making a very aggressive move, you know, a very dangerous move to make a rescue or something in a, in a potential scenario. And I basically kind of told him, look, you know, regarding that situation or any others, I want you to be aggressive as you as you possibly can without getting yourself hurt, killed, or in trouble. And I tried to explain to this guy that I am all about being as aggressive as possible in any situation. But say there's a victim trapped in this building, and if one of our firefighters gets themselves in a situation where that firefighter is injured or calling a mayday, you know, I've got to understand that if I get myself in that position as a firefighter, I am basically condemning that civilian and any others in the building to death. Because the moment a firefighter gets injured or starts calling a mayday, all of the focus on that fire ground is going to shift to that firefighter, right? So any civilians that had a chance, they just became second place because we're going for the firefighter now. Well, that makes a mayday a fine line. It becomes a question of, do I really need help or can I get out of this on my own? Because if I don't really need to help, someone else is going to pay for it. Yeah, well, and, and we definitely we don't want to get ourselves into a situation where members that are in a that are in a situation are not calling a mayday. Right. I mean, if you're if you're thinking in your I mean, as it's always said, you know, if you're thinking in your head, should I call a mayday? The answer was yes. A couple of seconds. Ago, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But the the thing I mean, and, and statistically, um, a trapped member is the most likely person to rescue themselves. Like if I get in a jam, I am the most likely person to get myself out of the jam. But you know, it does go back. It really goes to a little more advanced level thinking. I, you know, if you're thinking about this, when you're thinking, should I call a mayday? You're too late, right? You should be thinking about it when you're deciding on your action to take, you know, let me think about this. Is this going to work out? You know, there's a lot of things. Is it beyond my ability? Is it something that I can really pull off? Yeah. Don't, don't get yourself in the jam, you know, and train enough to know what you're capable of and, and what your crew is capable of and train enough, you know, to study other people's, you know, tragedies, you know, study situations, learn your size ups and all that. Cause you, you've really got to kind of, you know, make that decision when you're, when you're making the decision about whether or not to make a move, not kind of in the middle of it. You know what I mean? So let's talk about pretty good ICs. What makes a good incident commander get nervous on the fire ground? Well, you know, they're, there are a lot of things, of course, that can make, you know, an incident commander nervous. You know, I would say one one kind of set of traits are based on conditions, right? So, 
If you're uh, the incident commander is outside, they're in a position to observe certain parts of the building. So any observable changes um, in uh, in in the building, right? If you were to notice signs of collapse or signs of weakening or things of that nature, changes in conditions or, or you know, and when I say that, I principally, of course, mean unfavorable changes. You know, the fire is getting worse. You know, smoke is thickening. And, and to me, for example, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but you know, fire blowing out of something doesn't really worry me a lot because it's already on fire. You know what I'm saying? What really worries me is is the smoke conditions or or, or that are indicative that, that, you know, what was smoke is about to light off and become fire, that rapid fire event, because that is much more likely to have a bad outcome for our crews. Um, another thing, another category of things that probably makes an incident commander very nervous are communications-based things. Uh, and that could be anything from just screaming on the radio, um, because screaming on the radio naturally just makes it more intense than it needs to be. It also is an, is an indicator to me that the people involved in screaming probably don't really have a good handle on what's going on. And it definitely lowers my confidence in the screamer. The, the other, you know, kind of other communication things would be getting a report back that doesn't match what I see. You know, if I'm, if I'm hearing, Hey chief, we got all the fire knocked down and I'm looking at fire, I'm looking at fire blown out of the roof. That doesn't instill a lot of confidence. And probably the other, the other category of things that makes a chief nervous are control things, right? Um, if I don't feel like I have a control over where people are and what they're doing. So freelancing issues. Um, if, if I've done a poor job as a commander and I haven't been keeping what I call a tactical worksheet or other people might call an accountability board, but basically a document that, that tells me that, Hey, engine one is on the first floor, you know, ladder two is on the second floor, you know, kind of tells me where everybody is and what they're doing because the, the number one, you know, what it means to be in command of an incident is that you are able to control, you know, the location and function of all the crews on the scene, you know, through whatever your organization or chain of command is. So the moment that I feel like I don't have a good handle on where everybody is and what they're doing, or I'm not able to control them, or I feel like the building or the conditions are deteriorating, um, you know, or I'm not getting good information, then that those are the things that are really adding up to me pulling people out of a building. When you see an incident commander standing behind the explorer or the suburban with his head down over his status board or his sheet of paper, whatever he's working from, does that concern you that he's not looking at the fire? The the incident commander absolutely has to be looking at the building, right? I mean, you know, there are basically three things that I want an incident commander to pay attention to. The first one is the building or the situation in front of them. The second thing is either the operations radio channel, what different, different places call that different things, but whatever the radio channel is that the people inside the building are on, paying attention to that. And then their status board, accountability board, tactical worksheet or whatever. Those are the three things I want an incident commander to pay attention to. Where a lot of departments, you know, kind of set their incident commanders up for failure is they send one chief to a fire and expect him to run the whole thing. I want, uh, I want another chief next to me as an aide so that I can pay attention to the three things that I just mentioned and the other chief can pay attention to every, but everything else. The people that walk up to the command post, you know, the dispatch channel, it's, you know, the, the communication centers calling, you know, all those other things that distract me from the, from the operations channel. The, the fire building and my worksheet that tells me where my people are. You know, the other thing that I want is I'm, you know, I am a huge fan 
of putting other chief officers in forward positions and different places around the company call these different things. But whether it's a chief taking the fire floor or taking, you know, a division position, but basically taking another chief officer, putting them in gear in an air pack and putting them to putting them in a forward position where they can see the areas and the conditions and the situations that, that can't be seen from the command post. So it's really kind of more of a, a command team. But, no, you know, to answer your question specifically, yeah, if I've got a chief who's just staring down at a piece of paper the entire time and never looking up, that is probably a bad thing. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that in my experience as a journalist, I ran into several occasions where there was not that second chief there. You want to go up to the guy, you want to ask him questions about the fire, especially if there's not a PIO available. But you know that he's not talking right now, but that doesn't mean he's not listening. That doesn't mean he's not about to speak. So it always made me feel better when he had a second guy who would say, yeah, Scott, what do you need? I mean, in general, I am kind of an advocate of sending three chief, a minimum of three chief officers to a working incident because that puts one in command. It puts one of them in that kind of aid position, and it puts one at least one of them in that forward position on the fire floor or in the rear or wherever that second set of eyes needs to be. Just like we wouldn't send one engine company to put out a fire, we send usually three or four. We we shouldn't be sending just one chief officer, and that that's another thing you talk about a span of control. When you look at you look at a company, you look at a fire department's dispatch procedures. I would say a pretty average dispatch complement for a structure fire in the country is something around three engines, a ladder and a rescue, or maybe four engines and two ladders or something like that. But, you know, most fire departments, if they were to look at the number of units they, they dispatch to a structure fire, would find that their one chief officer is outside of their span of control the moment the call is dispatched, just based on the number of resources that are responding. So we need to be prepared to kind of organize that incident in a manner that that, that retains span of control, because that's another thing will make an incident commander very nervous and very timid and, and make them abandon the building is when they feel like they're being overwhelmed. And when you've got 10 different people calling you on the radio at a tough fire, that's overwhelming. All right. Nick Martin, thanks for talking about the best ways to be an incident commander and some of the ways we shouldn't be. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Have you experienced a fire ground run by an IC who is nervous? What effect did that have on the firefighters working the fire? Did they have to make decisions on their own? Or was there a lot of delay while waiting for a decision to be made by the IC? You can leave your comments on our website at code3podcast.com slash afraid. There's links to more info there as well, so check it out. And if you want to get a little discussion started and you have the guts to do it, send the link to this episode of Code 3 to your chief officer who acts as an IC. He'll either see himself in it or he'll look at it as an example of how some lesser ICs do their job. Either way, the reaction you get will tell you something about the officer you sent it to. Alright, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with more. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.